Welcome to The Stone Wolves, a Galactic Football League novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Hello, junkies! How are you doing today? Uh, some news in GFL 7 front. The second draft writing is still going extremely strong. Extremely strong. I'm 110,000 words into it. Roughly 88% finished with the whole thing. But with eight new chapters still to add, who knows how long it will be. I had it projected for 125,000 words. It could wind up being 135,000. Could wind up being 145,000 words. I don't know. But I have hopes of being done with the second draft in mid-December. Can't say for sure. The thing's got to be right when I get it done. Move it on to Big John Viscar, continuity editor, and then we will gradually move into the final draft, and someday you will have it. The Mount Fitzroy paperback is out. It is a massive, massive tome. 890 pages from cover to cover. You could do like you could do like curls with this beast and blast some guns. Like, get those gains, brother. Get those gains. You can get it from your local bookstore. Ask them to order it for you, and they will. Or go to scottsigler.com slash Mount Fitzroy and click the links to order Mount Fitzroy from Amazon.com or autographed copies from Mysterious Galaxy Books in San Diego. I will go straight down to the store. I will use my own gosh darn pen. And I tell you now, you hear me now, I will sign that son of a bitch. I will sign my name on that son of a bitch, and then they will mail it right to you. We've got new t-shirts up at scottsigler.com slash shop, including the orange run the plays that I call shirt and three new shirts for my metal band super weapon. You can be the first kid on your block to own those. We've got select hardcovers on sale for 15 bucks each at scottsigler.com slash shop. Snag Ancestor or Nocturnal in hardcover at 15 bucks each for your own shelf or signed copies for your pals as a great Christmas present. Let me get you caught up on the story and then we're all going to go make a radcast. Previously on The Stone Wolves. Druge Thorn is building a key weapon for the Vermada, but the project's secrecy is in jeopardy from The Traveler, a double agent from the Zoroastrian Guild who threatens to expose the Vermada's new superweapon. Thorn must find The Traveler and end this threat to the project. Chapter 9 The Traveler Aya had promised. She knew that. But some promises were meant to be broken. Our crime lords, tied up in the galaxy's healthcare kickback conspiracy? This week, my freaks, that's what I want you to find out. This is Rara Avis, Queen of the Dark Ways, coming at you from the hidden depths of the void. The last time I graced you with my royal presence, I wanted you to go forth and find info on corruption in the League of Planets' system-wide medical complex. Should it really cost a thousand creds for that oldie but goodie of medicine, a single pill of aspirin? We know the answer, and that answer is shock no. 
But to speak truth to power, we need to shine a light on the bacteria brains posing as government officials, the slug souls perpetrating as insurance company CEOs, and yes, the slime scum at Big Pharma who make all these profit puppets dance. I asked for info on the leeches, and you, my freaks, my dark darlings, you came through like the hopeful heroes that you are. You are also apex. It makes the gray bits inside my skull ache with love. This broadcast will bring actionable proof of deep corruption. Will this solve the entire problem? No, because greed is a cancer that can't be cured. But together, we've connected enough dots that some sentients are going to prison. And speaking of prisons, I have paused the recording. She couldn't ask about the borehole. Knowledge was power, but asking for that knowledge could possibly raise red flags at the prison and make it harder for the Oleran crew to get the job done. After her screw-up with a data cube tracker, she wasn't going to mess up again. And she wouldn't transmit an image of Fanaka. Aya wasn't supposed to radcast at all, but the least she could do was respect Skipper's request to treat Fanaka like a guest. For now, anyway. Suffering through two attacks in the past few days, Aya needed information on one subject more than any other. Delete last sentence, she said. Her comms deck beeped an affirmative. Record, Aya said. Prison. Can you imagine the joy of seeing these scumbags behind bars? I'll share the info you've all gathered for me in a moment, but first, this week's question. Organized crime. It's a daily problem for us all, is it not? These lecherous lowlifes prey upon sentience everywhere. We all know who the major players are out there. Anna Vellani, Spreka Palmateri, Greedock the Splithead, Sandstone Eater. But what about the up-and-comers? There are two in particular that my sources say might be tied to the healthcare corruption. Craig Aquan and the Ponsky sisters. If they're tied to healthcare corruption, your queen wants to know. Go forth, my dark darlings. Find out what you can about Aquan and the sisters. Bring your queen the delicious details if you can find them. But, as always, be careful. Your lives and safety matter to me. Now, let's talk about corruption in the construction industry. Your fellow freaks are hot on the trail of stories about the Cherail Corp's work for the Empire's Colony Program and some weird rumors about the Bessatrix Company building a giant ship on the dark side of a Solomon moon. You really won't believe this stuff. What are you doing about the Traveler? Druge hated the emissary. He hated the leaky species in general. A disgusting race. Blubber-like, black-striped, bright blue skin, pointed fish face, voices that sounded like an underwater fart. The emissary's small yellow eyes looked at Druge Thorne much in the way an exterminator looks at a pest. Druge wished the sentient were physically there, in Druge's office, and not browbeating him via holotank from the safety of an orbiting ship. Druge wanted to punch the emissary right in the gills. Steps are being taken, Druge said. Steps, the leaky said. We want details. The broker is concerned about your operational security very much so. Punch it in the gills, 
then force feed the vile thing its own symbiotes. Operational security is why I've been here, in the middle of nowhere, for five years, Drew said. Operational security is why I can't give you the details. As far as I know, your insistence on adding those five full-time guards over my strenuous objections is why we are in this predicament in the first place. The spiked fin that ran from the top of the emissary's head down its back rose for a moment, an undeniable sign of anger. Unbelievable, the leak, he said. You're going to blame this debacle on someone else? What a stupid question. Of course Druge was going to blame it on someone else. Adding the guards had been a huge mistake. Druge had known better. But he'd caved to pressure from this idiot and from the broker. They had wanted to help. They had wanted to give Druge and his staff more resources. That Druge had even considered such nonsense, that he'd let critical information leave his full control, was probably the reason the project was now at risk. The traveler didn't get his intel from my operation, Druge said. I can assure you of that. Druge couldn't actually assure anyone of that, not even himself. While he had taken immense, painful steps to ensure operational security, the truth was, he had no idea where the Traveler, the codename the Guild used for Yitzhak Goldman, had gotten the info about what Druge's team was building here. MT-734 was a no-man's land, claimed by three separate governments. The only reason no one fought over it was because there was nothing here, nothing but a checkmark yes for rich tourists who could afford to see the nothing. Three governments pursued zero development on the rock, but each of them kept an eye out, made sure the other governments weren't up to something. Druge's facility was inspected every few months. When inspectors came, he closed the retractable floor that hid the real work of this place. The retractable floor. He'd spent big money on that, taken risks to have it installed. Once it was in, though, he'd played it clean with everything else. There was nothing in this research facility that would raise an inspector's curiosity. On Laramie 3, Druge had learned his lesson about doing too much, about having too many weapons, too big a garrison. Back then, it hadn't made any difference. And he'd learned that the best way to keep a secret was to keep a secret, to not do anything that might draw attention. Twenty years he'd put into this. Five at this facility alone, in the middle of nowhere, never leaving these walls. So close to the end, he wondered if that sacrifice would be for nothing. It's clearly not my fault, Drew said. We are locked down tight here. You want the source of the leak? Tell the broker to look elsewhere. If it hadn't been for our associates in the League getting us some of the Traveler's transmissions, we wouldn't even know there was an issue in the first place but I know that I'll solve the problem the leak caused. I'll meet with the Traveler myself. To most everyone, the League usually referred to the League of Planets. In Goldman's case, though, it meant the Galactic Football League. When Goldman had been seized by Commissioner Rob Frost nine weeks ago, a Vermada agent in the Commissioner's front office had managed to copy some of the messages Goldman had been sending. Messages hinting about a superweapon that could cause millions of deaths. 
The leaky paused as one of its symbiotes crawled along its dorsal fin to its head, plucked what could only be called a booger from the leaky's white eye. The symbiote ate the booger. Disgusting. The broker has more faith in you than many others, the emissary said. Druge nodded. That is why the broker is in charge, I imagine. The broker is smart. The leaky let out a woof of derision, a bellowing of air that made its gill flaps rattle. I must report back, the emissary said. What is the status of your trilomite research? Even with a double encrypted direct beam signal, they talked in codes and references. Trilomite research was code for the cruncher, which itself was code for something else. This subject put Druge on far firmer ground. In total, he had spent two decades on this project and couldn't help but let the pride show when he answered. Let the broker know we should be able to deliver research results in four standard days. The leaky shivered. Its crawling symbiotes shivered right along with it. Druge didn't know why it shivered. The leaky were an odd race, to say the least. Four days, the emissary said. You are exactly on the schedule you gave us years ago. Impressive. And since I am on schedule, I assume you will be ready for the handoff. I want the welcome committee ready just in case. And I want the broker to know that any delays will not be coming from my end. The emissary wuffed again. Not from derision this time. This was something more akin to panic. We will be in position, the leaky said. One hour from your signal, we will be there to take delivery. The sooner the emissary ship took control of the delivery, the sooner Druge could finally leave this awful place. It had been five years since he'd been anywhere else, since any of the staff had been anywhere else. Everyone was beyond ready to collect their final payday and get away from this place. We are almost out of range, the emissary said. Is there anything else you want the broker to know? There was much Druge wanted the broker to know. Things like, even if we finish our work here, we could still be screwed if we don't get Goldman. Or, patch the holes in your network before the big secret gets out. Or, I've been on this rock for five goddamn years, so you better make sure my private island is ready when I'm done. But to keep that island, Druge had to know what the traveler knew. No, Druge said, nothing else. The leaky's image blinked out. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Plus. 
Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. As far as monthly reports went, this one had been better than most. Druge had no direct communication with the broker. He didn't even know who the broker was. He assumed the emissary didn't either. He gazed across his crappy little office and through its crystal pane down to the manufacturing laboratory that lay beyond. The scientists, engineers, and robotic resources were finally, finally, in the closing stages of the project codenamed Cruncher. Twenty standard years. Twenty. To build a device that would change history forever. Five of those twenty years here, in this building, with no one leaving, including Druge. No vacations. No time off. No restaurants, just a small, well-stocked cafeteria. No theater, no concerts, no culture. Just movies and other programs that arrived every few months or sports and newscasts that were weeks out of date at best. This place was like serving aboard a military vessel on a long deployment. No docking at a port, no liberty, no break, no reprieve. It was a harsh way to do business, but he'd learned the consequences of granting privileges, of letting sentients come and go, of adding staff that simply was not needed. He'd learned the hard way. The factory floor looked clean and perfunctory save for one flourish, a tall, wide window that took up much of the north wall. Druge wanted his workers to have a constant reminder that outside of this facility there was only a hostile, airless, rock-strewn landscape. Complain too much, screw up too much, crack under pressure, and you got a walk outside. The staff depended on him, not just for a big payday, but for food, shelter, for life itself. They were terrified of him, which was how it had to be. Loyalty, the unflinching, unvarying, self-preserving kind, was built that way. Most assembly of the Cruncher's unassuming enclosures was handled by massive robotic arms that swerved, clamped, and fused, assembling disparate pieces, a kind of ebb-and-flow grace that reminded Druge of ballet. But the complex, volatile guts of these weapons, the stuff that would soon ruin whatever political stability this galaxy still had, were assembled by hand, slowly and methodically by the skilled sentients out there on the factory lab floor. Those sentients did not fully understand the science that powered their creation. Druge, a lifelong soldier, certainly didn't understand either. The schematics his team worked from had been created by a species far more advanced than their own. While the lab workers hadn't been told what the device would do once finished, they were all highly intelligent. Some of them, 
would have figured it out by now, some perhaps not. Not that it mattered, none of them would leave this place alive. The laboratory workers and robots appeared to be working thoughtfully and efficiently. Good. Druge permitted himself to smile at the progress. The smile could not last. Pain, unpredictable and yet omnipresent, arced across his shoulders, up his neck, into his right temple. A ball of fire seemed to blast behind his eye. Druge ached. He always ached. The pain that racked his body was never anything less than a ferocious throb, and far more often a relentless, thunderous Tycho drumbeat. He once likened the sensation to sewing needles, constantly pressing through his marrow, bones, muscles, and skin from the inside out. But even that description didn't do it justice. Often, the pain infuriated him. Today, it fueled him with a primal sense of focus and purpose. The first cruncher was almost complete, but it wasn't just that. Fate had intervened. Revenge, long-awaited, was finally in his grasp. Revenge against Fanaka Hopscotch Tolvage. And against Killian Carbonaro, the killer. Revenge for Druge's missing right arm, and his missing left hand, and his femur, tibia, and fibula that had been so thoroughly shattered. Revenge for his broken vertebrae, T4 through T10 to be precise. Revenge for his smashed frontal, sphenoid, and temporal cranial bones, on his left side if one wanted to be specific. For all the parts that had been destroyed by Killian Carbonaro. The events on Laramie 3 had devastated Druge Thorne, torn away everything that had been important to him. 36 years ago. Had it really been that long? No, no longer. 37 years ago. After losing Hopscotch to the killer, after escaping with what was left of his life, Druge had expected to die at the hands of the Vermada. He had failed, and the Vermada did not tolerate failure. But Druge's damaged body created a win-win opportunity for the Guild Splinter Group and for himself. His full recovery would take years. He spent some of that time trying to track down the killer, trying to take revenge upon the killer's family. When that family wound up dead and the killer vanished, the Guild Splinter Group ordered Druge to manage a particular project. That project? The Cruncher. The thing the Abernessia wanted above all others. Not all of the Vermada knew of the Abernessia, but those who did understood the realities of power and of life. Decades earlier, the Kretorakians had swept across the galaxy and taken control. The conquering bats would soon be swept aside themselves. Say hello to the new boss, the Abernessia. Yes, Druge had expected to pay the ultimate price for failure, and to be honest, he would have been fine with that. After the killer's rampage, what was there to live for? The answer turned out to be redemption. Redemption came in the form of endless surgeries, cutting-edge mods, and a lifetime supply of pain-dulling drugs. The Vermada had Druge turned into something far more dangerous than he'd been before. Druge could have died, should have died, but his hate helped him endure the hundreds of operations 
and the endless physical agony. Most of his motor skills were now controlled by a League of Planets manufactured microprocessor installed at the base of his skull. His severed arm and hand were replaced with combat-grade titanium cybernetics. His crushed vertebrae had been scraped out. What was left of his spinal column was fused with prawat minids that had been denatured, stripped of sentience, to create a hybrid biomech system. The system worked well, most of the time. It was the fourth or fifth surgery, he couldn't remember which, when the docs decided to remove his legs. One had been smashed to a pulp by the killer, so that was well and fine. The other one had been perfectly good. They cut it off anyway, so they could install a matched set of cybernetic limbs. His extensive cranial damage, which typically would have killed a human, was now mitigated by an array of subdermal plates and neural stimulators, some of which emerged from his scarred, hairless scalp like small, needle-like antennae. This technology helped relay information across his wrecked brain. It also prevented the skull fragments that had penetrated his brain tissue from doing any further damage. He no longer had to ingest drugs. An embedded body doc tracked the values of various compounds in his blood, made sure his steady stream of painkillers was always at the proper level. Just plug a hose into the body doc port, top off the levels every two weeks, and he was all set. These enhancements were done as elegantly as possible which hadn't been elegant at all. The physical and neurological damage had been too great, and the mandate from his benefactors, utility over beauty, hadn't done him any favors either. Once upon a time, Druge Thorne had been lithe and handsome. Now he looked like a lurching ghoul. He sometimes wondered how his daughter Savimli would have reacted if she saw him like this. Druge pretended she would have recognized and loved him, despite all that had changed. He knew better. She would have screamed until she went hoarse, and then she would have screamed some more. She would have scratched at her eyes, trying to unsee him. She would have balled her fists and smashed them against her temples, trying to unremember him. She would have said, no, 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 over and over and over again, until the word lost its meaning and that would have been fine because even the most primal and important things lose meaning when terrible creatures such as Druge roam the universe. He missed her. He often daydreamed about what kind of woman she might have become. He would never know because of the killer. That fool. That fool and his cronies in the Krizatu. They'd wanted to defeat the Kretorakians. The Abernessia would do just that. Liberty was coming back to the Milky Way. Perhaps not as much as there had been before the bats had come, true, but things would be better. Druge often wondered what the Abernessia looked like. Ugly, probably, like all non-humans. And whatever the Abernessia were, could they be uglier than the bats? Impossible. Roughly a decade ago, a power struggle erupted inside the guild. The winner was known only as the Broker. The Broker controlled the Abernessian purse strings. As with all things in life, the sentient with the most money calls the tunes. The smart operators, like Druge, danced to those tunes. Thanks to the Broker, the Vermada now controlled most of the Zoroastrian guild. Gone were the silly missions attacking hardened Kretorakian military defenses. 
what good had any of that done anyway? The bats simply didn't care about death the same way other races did. The Vermada had, instead, gone after soft targets. Buildings, shopping centers, hospitals, schools. Places that were easy to hit and offered a high body count. The loss of civilian life was regrettable but necessary. Those attacks helped destabilize the empire. When the Abernessia came, the weaker the bats were, the fewer lives that would be lost overall. Destabilization. It couldn't get more destabilizing than the cruncher. Druge didn't know if the weapon would actually work. No one did, really. He had his doubts. It didn't matter if it worked. Not to him. He was fulfilling his mission. If he followed the instructions provided by the Abernessia, if he got the cruncher completed on time, then he was in the clear. Even the broker wouldn't blame him if the tech didn't do what it was supposed to do. But if the cruncher did work, Druge hoped the Abernessians would use it on Kretorak itself. Maybe they would exterminate the bats altogether. Wipe them out forever. One could only hope. The few members of the Vermada who actually knew about the Abernessia weren't stupid. They knew the Abernessia had their own plans for this region of the universe and that the aliens weren't coming to bring the races together and sing Kumbaya. War was coming. No matter what, there would be horror. But in the end, the galaxy would also be free of Kretorakian tyranny. Even when freedom comes at a terrible cost, it's still better than living in slavery. Druge believed that. The cruncher probably wouldn't work, but if it did... He watched the efforts going on down on the lab factory floor. The camouflage had been his idea. A stroke of genius, if he did say so himself. The weapon gave off a very specific, very slight radiation that his team had yet to contain, but someone would have to know exactly what they were looking for to detect it. As for standard safety regulations, though, the amount of emission was well within the accepted rad tolerances of all governments. Hiding in plain sight was the best way to hide. How fascinating that the Abernessians were already working on their conquest deep inside their targeted territory. Here, in this secret facility, on a dead planet in the Hurrah Tribal Accord. Or was it in the Planetary Union or in the League of Planets? Ownership depended on how one read a map. Those three governments certainly weren't going to fight over a lifeless rock. The planet didn't even have a real name. On the charts, it was called MT-734. No atmosphere, which made it undesirable to the hurrah. Almost no natural resources, which made it undesirable to everyone else. MT-734 had just enough mass and gravitational pull to serve as a punch anchor for some, but not all, planets in nearby space. That might have made MT-734 a worthwhile stopping point, like Gateway, if it weren't for the fact that the only places reachable via punch were Lara and the Newton Webb Colony, which were only a day apart from each other to begin with and already enjoyed a flourishing trade route, and Rurgirk. But who the hell traveled there? As such, no one wanted to invest the resources to develop MT-734 or the seven other punchable dead rocks in the region. It simply wasn't worth the effort. The Union and the Accord had made treaties that the MT Planet Group would not be developed. 
The union parked a small task force at MT-734's logical punch-out location near Newton. The Harad did the same near Lora, and that was that. The Ramada's secret base was small, buried in one of MT-734's mountain ranges. All emissions were routed deep into the ground. The base was a speck of nothing on a dead rock that no one cared about. Well, not no one, not anymore. That bastard Goldman cared. The first priority was to get to Goldman before he talked to the bats. Druge was too close to success for anything to go wrong now. The second priority, if possible, was to find out exactly how much Goldman knew. Did he know all about the cruncher, or did he just know bits and pieces? Perhaps he'd picked up on rumors of some unnamed weapon. Yitzhak Goldman, a.k.a. Redwire, a.k.a. The Traveler. Druge had finally caught up with him. How fitting that Redwire's Krizatu mates would also, finally, get their just desserts. Three for the price of one, a bargain satisfying beyond measure. He'd almost had Goldman. It was risky targeting a GFL player, but the costs were too high to not take that risk. If only Goldman hadn't been arrested. Another week, perhaps two at the most, and Druge's quiet and expensive contract on Goldman would have resulted in the man's death. Getting arrested had, ironically, saved Goldman's life. A bolt of pain drove through Druge's eye, made him wince so badly that a secondary bolt seared across one of his skull plates. He calmed himself. He felt a coolness inside, his body doc dumping pain meds into his bloodstream. Such was life. Druge again looked out and down to the lab workers and robots assembling the cruncher. He eagerly anticipated the news of Killian Carbonaro's death. It wouldn't be much longer now. Revenge. Yes, revenge, finally. A buzz from the office speakerphone. Director Thorne, we've updated the simulation with the latest modifications to the device. The predicted success rate is up to 95%. Would you like to see the sim? Director. An accurate title, but was it right anymore? When this project completed, Druge would move into a new phase of life. Perhaps that required a new title. He sat down in a chair directly in front of the office's holotank. Yes, he said. Let me see. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella, written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins, performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram, where he is at Scott Sigler, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2021, Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song Battle Cry by the band Super Weapon. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine. 
erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.